Hi, I'm Keith Deasy, and this is From the Ground Up, a podcast about how we make what we make, the materials, the tools, and the stories behind the things we build. July 30th, 1994, Washington, D.C. On the floor of the U.S. House of Representatives, Representative Maxine Waters of California is denouncing Representative Steve King, a rival from Long Island, New York, about a line of questioning from the night before. Tempers were flaring, and because of the rules of the House, Waters was instructed that she must leave the floor and return to her seat. She did not relent. Representative Carrie Meek, who was presiding at the time, began to bang her gavel as she instructed Waters repeatedly to yield the floor, while King and others shouted for the sergeant-at-arms to remove her by force. Waters did not relent. Meek began to call for the sergeant-at-arms as well. The cacophony grew as Representative Waters calmly walked off the floor. As silence fell and Representative Meek regained control of the proceedings, she then uttered a phrase seldom heard in the House of Representatives. The chair was about to direct the sergeant-at-arms to remove, to present the the mace. Present the mace? What, What does that mean? Well, she was referring to the mace of the U.S. House of Representatives. It is a symbol of the authority of the House itself. Wielded by the sergeant-at-arms, the officer in charge of securing the House wing of the Capitol and maintaining order in the chamber, it is a ceremonial weapon. The mace stands about four and a half feet tall. On the business end sits an eagle perched atop a globe made entirely of sterling silver. The handle is comprised of 13 ebony rods symbolizing the original 13 colonies, bound and wrapped in twining silver bands. Aside from its usual ceremonial duties, the mace is also occasionally presented to an unruly or raucous representative by the sergeant-at-arms. It can also be taken from its usual resting place, a pedestal at the speaker's right side, and used by the officer to escort truant or absentee representatives back into the chamber to perform their duties. The mace itself isn't used as a weapon, but more as a final warning. It says, essentially, You are now facing the full authority of the United States House of Representatives, wielded by its highest-ranking officer. What happens next is on you. In October of 1841, House Speaker John White commissioned a silversmith out of New York named William Adams to craft a mace to replace the original, lost when the capital was burned to the ground by British troops in 1814. Since that time, they had been using a painted wooden facsimile, which lacked the authoritative oomph of the former mace. Adams created the weapon still used to this day as a potent symbol of the rule of law in America. He, however, was not the most skilled silversmith. He did a fine job on the mace, but he was not renowned for his aptitude in shaping metal. So why hire him at all? In fact, why even use silver? Ceremonial maces of the legislative bodies of other countries, and yes, various parliaments and senates around the world have their own maces, are almost all uniformly gold. It is a much more rare and precious metal and typically is associated with wealth, power, and royalty. But silver is at the heart of the story of America. A tale of craft and trade, war and investment, a story of wealth and of the common man, industry, technology, and of course, power and influence. Colonial silversmiths were plentiful. However, at the time, sources of silver were not. A great deal of silversmiths were really silver importers, selling items shipped in from England to well-off customers, 
and buying unfinished silver from the Spanish colonies of South America to craft only the occasional original piece. This gave the Smiths an understanding of international trade, as well as a sharp business acumen. Those who created more original pieces often found themselves bargaining with their fellow citizens for the scarce metal, either by purchasing old silver items or being paid in silver coins, which could be melted down into ingots and shaped into the craftsman's works. The townsfolk became both customer and supplier for many of the smiths, earning them many political and social connections, especially to the wealthy and influential upper class. The artistry of those truly gifted smiths did not go unnoticed. You had to be a very fine craftsperson to be a silversmith, as each piece is a large investment by the customer. The prestigious vocation provided many opportunities for advancement that were not particularly tied to the work itself. Paul Revere, one of the country's most famous patriots, was a silversmith of the highest order. A gifted craftsman and mechanical thinker, his connections and wealth gained from silversmithing allowed him to expand into the industries of iron and copper work. He ran an iron foundry, and he was the first to roll copper into sheets in a commercially viable manner, selling them to the new U.S. Navy to clad the outsides of ships. He also manufactured massive bronze bells for local churches around Massachusetts, and engraved plaques for historic sites around Boston, including the one for the site of the Boston Massacre. He had deep roots in a community, and it served him very well. A half century or so later, William Adams made a fortune in real estate in his home of Troy, New York. He became very well connected, and his work as a silversmith seemed almost ancillary to his goals as a politician and businessman. The commission of the Mace of the House was likely awarded to him due to his work as an alderman in New York City's 5th District and his close friendship with influential Kentucky statesman Henry Clay. Clay would later help enact harsh tariffs on imported silver and gold goods to the U.S., effectively cornering the domestic market for native silversmiths. As a thank you, he was presented with a beautifully crafted, three-foot-tall silver urn valued then at $1,000, or about $30,000 today. The vessel bore the inscription, presented to Henry Clay by the gold and silver artisans of New York, as a tribute of their respect for the faithful and patriotic manner in which he has discharged his public trusts, and especially his early and untiring advocacy to American industry, 1845. Which is essentially a really diplomatic way of saying, thank you for protecting our wealth and influence. The urn was manufactured, by the way, by William Adams of New York. On the desk of the Speaker of the House also sits another symbol, albeit not as intimidating as a four-foot mace. A beautifully ornate silver inkwell housing three crystal bottles rests at the hands of the Speaker, and while retired from its life as a practical object, it remains the oldest artifact in the House chamber and a symbol of the authority of the figure behind that rostrum. It is an extremely well-crafted piece, adorned with gleaming carved cloth sweeping between decorative medallions, proud eagles perched inside of them. Its four legs are columns with a serpent wrapped around each one. It was made by a young silversmith named Jacob Leonard. Just prior to the War of 1812, Leonard had set out to make the most of the seemingly boundless opportunity that awaited a smart and enterprising businessman in Washington, D.C. Soon after arriving, he took over the silversmithing business of George Riggs, when the war saw the White House and Capitol, among other D.C. buildings, burn to the ground, Leonard saw an opportunity and moved his business to the center of town, Pennsylvania Avenue, a stone's throw from the rebuilt structures. 
He worked diligently and established himself as a leader in the community. He was named Washington's Sealer of Weights and Measures, as well as earning many more commissions for silverware from the State Department and Congress. His inkstand, however, lived on to become one of the more enduring, if less well-known, symbols of American politics. Henry Clay included it in an 1821 portrait of himself to commemorate his career as House Speaker. Samuel Morse, in his famous 7 by 10 foot painting of a House session at night, includes a tiny, fully rendered image of the inkwell, glinting in the low light of the meeting. Every time the House is in session, the inkwell is there, as it has been for almost 200 years, witnessing history as it is made. And stamped on the bottom is the mark of Jacob Leonard, a man who won wealth and power by shaping metal. Silver scarcity in the early days of the United States led those who worked it to live lives of wealth, prestige, and leadership. However, the nature of mining silver in America was about to change, thanks to a couple of brothers who almost took the secret of one of America's greatest natural hidden treasures to their graves. More on that in part two of this series. From the Ground Up is an ongoing experiment. It is now and will always be available free of charge. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash keithdecent by leaving a review on iTunes, or just by sharing your favorite episode. All Patreon supporters have access to behind-the-scenes and bonus content, as well as the new series of bonus episodes containing behind-the-scenes and extended historical action. I'd like to thank the following patrons for going the extra mile to make this show possible. Make, Build, Modify, Vincent Ferrari, Lila Naraki, Maker Geek, Brody Jeff, Infinite Craftsman, Johnny Builds, Ryan Ridgely, Alex Kraus, Matt Cummel, and Phil Plant. Until next time, this is Keith Decent saying, Later, makers. <laughs>